So turn with me now to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And uh, I think on Thursday I said we're going to look at 6 to 8. I think we're going to do a bit more than that. We're going to look at uh, 6 through to 11. But I want us to read from 1 through to 11. So Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom We have now received reconciliation. I remember once uh, distributing literature with uh, someone else uh, round about Solihull, and uh, we were going to, we were trying to engage with people in conversation, uh, tell them about the gospel. And sometimes when when you do that, you meet somebody who goes to another church, and uh, we met somebody who goes. He went to a, a well-known church in Solihull, and uh, she gave a very good, good account of, of how she had come to faith and how she had been saved, and uh, we had uh, no reason to doubt the, the truth of her testimony about that. And, uh, you know, she spoke a lot about the, the, God's love for her, uh, which is great, isn't it? It's great to meet Christians who have this deep appreciation of the love of God uh, for them personally. Uh, however, I was always a little curious, and I, I asked the question, I sometimes ask people this question, how do you know that God loves you? And, uh, and I wonder how you'd answer that question. How do you know that God loves you? Uh, the lady answered something like this. Um, well, sometimes when I read my Bible, or when I'm walking along praying... God's love for me. You feel it inside of you. It's like a, it washes over you. And uh, you have this feeling of the great love of God. So this lady thought that the, the knowledge of the love of God c- came to her through a feeling. That was her first answer. A subjective experience. Now, I rather think that that's a common response. Uh, 
you ask, uh, people, you know, if you ask Christians, they will often say something similar. Uh, I feel God's love uh, at various times. Uh, the trouble, of course, of that is, uh, is that your feelings are up and down all the time, aren't they? They, they, they? Sometimes they're up and you're happy and you think, wow, God really loves me. And sometimes you're really low and you think, where's God? And I don't know if God loves me at all. And you know, your feelings are kind of like this. And you know, does that mean God's love is like this? <laughs> no. Uh, so that you can see the danger, the danger of relying on our feelings as a measure of, of God's love. Uh, it can have absolutely nothing to do with God himself. And everything to do with our moods in our circumstances. So, how would Paul answer that question? How do you know that God loves you? Now, Paul does say, in verse uh, 5, and we looked at this uh, briefly last, last week, uh, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that verse, as we saw, does speak of a, an ongoing present work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, sustaining you and me in the midst of all our trials and all our sufferings and our struggles and putting into our hearts a, a knowledge of that love of God. So there's, there is something going on that the Holy Spirit is doing within us, that's true. And it's a sign, of course, of the inner work of salvation that, uh, that God is working out in us, that we do have this knowledge of the love of God. But how does he do it? What does the Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit draw our attention to the love of God? How does he, he demonstrate it? And that's what Paul, I think, is addressing here in this, this passage. So the first question is, is, where is the love of God demonstrated? Where does he encourage us to look for confirmation that God really loves us? Does he get us to look inside of ourselves? Does he get us to look at our circumstances and say, if things are going well, God really loves me? Well, no, the the answer is, in verse 8, God shows, or as the NIV puts it, demonstrates his love for us, in that while we're still sinners... Christ died for us. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So do you want a sign that God really loves you? Don't look to your subjective experience. Look outside of yourself. Instead, look at the objective work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for sinners. You look at the cross, you think about him. And all he did for sinners. And there you get the evidence that God really loves you. See, Jesus and his cross are central to the Holy Holy Spirit's work in the believer. You remember what Jesus told his disciples in in the upper room? uh, John 15, 26. uh, But when the Helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The work of the Holy Spirit is always to point to 
Jesus Christ and his work. And this is one of the ways in which we can really know if someone has become a real believer, a real Christian, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, they become keenly aware that at the very center of Christianity is the cross, the cross of Jesus. And that his death was for him or for her. That's why it's most troubling when you do meet other people who go to church and uh, you ask them about their Christian faith and they've got nothing to say about the cross. They just think they've joined a religion. And it seems to give the right moral direction to people or some, some such answer. But the cross doesn't seem to be too important to those people. We should always be concerned for such people. And uh, that's quite a hard conversation to have. I've had many conversations like that with people who, who don't mention the cross at all. And I try and ask them, what do you make, about Jesus, make of Jesus? And often the answer is very underwhelming. What do you make of the cross? Oh, we don't worry about that. He gave us the teaching. How to live. What what does Paul say about uh, Jesus' death? He he says a number of things, and we're still under this idea of uh, where is the love of God demonstrated. And the three things he says in verse 6, we're still under the first heading. Three things he says. First of all, he says in verse 6, he says that, that he died while we were weak, while we were sinners. And the whole trouble with sin is that it comes about as a result of an open rebellion against God. It leaves us weak. It leaves us, it cripples us. It has all kinds of adverse effects upon us. Uh, So much so that it's impossible for us to do anything about the problem. Once you have, you have sinned in your life and you have it from birth, there is nothing you can do about it. You're stuck with it. It's like a disease that you can't get rid of. And it's, it's rather like You know, you're kind of lying around on the ground, unable to move, and something is coming to crush you, the wrath of God. You're lying around, and you can't move, and you can't do anything to save yourself. Elsewhere, Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. It's like you're living but dead. You're lying there. You can't do anything. And that's what sin does. This this is how sin affects you. You are left utterly helpless. You can never get up and save yourself. You can never solve your sin problem by yourself. So that's the first thing. He died while we were weak. We were in open rebellion against God. He died. Jesus died. Secondly, it happened at the right time. This is verse 6 still. It was at the right time uh, that Jesus came. In other words, the Father had a plan to intervene to save his people. And so there was in history this appointed time when Jesus would come. And he comes just at the right time. There's no accident that Jesus came when he came. It was intended. God planned it. And when he he arrived as a, a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, that's when God said it was going to happen. That's 
God intended it. And then the third thing he says is, Christ died while we're still weak, at the right time, for the ungodly. For the ungodly. Takes us back to the things we were learning in chapter 1, verse 18. That um, the problem for mankind is, is his ungodliness and unrighteousness. Mankind is ungodly and unrighteous. Where man has turned his back on God. And perhaps more importantly, God has turned his, you know, his back upon the ungodliness of man. And therefore his wrath is against mankind. And that's all that's left for mankind. You, you know, so we get 70 years, you know, 70 or 80 years, maybe 90 years if you're, uh, if you're lucky. <laughs> and uh, you can live your life and enjoy much of it there, but then comes wrath, comes God's wrath, God's judgment comes. But the staggering thing that Paul is bringing out here is that this death of Jesus was for the enemies of God. People who were remaining enemies, they didn't come as friends to God and say, can you do something for us? They remained as enemies. God sovereignly acted in history to send his son into the world to suffer and to die. It didn't depend on us. God acted unilaterally. Uh, to save his people. And Paul, I think, reinforces this with uh, what might be called a little thought experiment now, moving on to verse 7. Uh, because he's kind of asking the question, what, in what circumstances do you get people dying for other people? Uh, and, and we were thinking a little bit that, about that this morning. We were at a two-minute silence, and we were remembering those who died for the sake of others. Uh, in wars and so on. So sometimes people do die for other people. Um, people do lay down their lives for friends and family, for, for worthy people perhaps. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Jesus laid down his life for people who hated his father, hated him, and were in open rebellion against him. And that's the amazing depth of the love of God for his people. That while they were enemies, he still sent his son to die. Jesus willingly came. So God's love is demonstrated on the cross in the death of Jesus. Here's a question for every Christian. There's a little kind of test. Which... Which statement is correct? Number one, God loves you because Jesus died on the cross. God loves you because Jesus died on the cross. Or, number two, Jesus died on the cross because God loves you. Now you're thinking, oh no, I'm not sure which one it is. (laughs) There's only one right answer. There are lots of Christians who believe the first, God loves you because Jesus died. Jesus' death is the cause of God's love. But that's false. That's actually a denial of the gospel. 
the true goodness and true good news. It's not really a gospel at all. Because the truth about the gospel is that God has always loved his people. And therefore, Jesus died because God loves you. Jesus died because God loves you, and he's always loved you. And he's always had you in his heart. It's out of the love of the Father and of the Son and indeed the Holy Spirit that the whole plan of salvation was brought into play so, so that at the right time, Jesus came and shed his blood. Jesus died because God loves his people. And that's the wonderful good news of the gospel. As, as we go on into verses 9 and 10, we see just the fullness of that salvation. So that's uh, really the next heading, full salvation. And there are two big words in verses 9 and 10 that we've met already. So, so verse 9, first of all, we come across uh, justifications. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And that simply means that we who are unrighteous, sinful, and unholy, and have no hope of ever becoming righteous by ourselves, are declared righteous by God. It's the wonderful, great truth of the gospel. And the basis of that declaration that God makes is the death of Jesus. Jesus has died in our place on the cross. And so because he has done that, he can say to us, you are righteous. My son has come, but you are made righteous. And I can treat you as righteous. He has paid for your sins. And the means by which we receive that declaration and hear that declaration is through faith. We come to a living faith. We come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a sense in which we don't really have to do anything except metaphorically stretch out our hand to receive from God. But that in itself doesn't save anybody. But we get justified by his blood. The wonderful work of Jesus on the cross. And the second thing that he says here is that we gain reconciliation. Uh, verse 10, for if we are, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life And that's what happens when Paul has already said in verse 1, we have peace with God. Yes, there is peace, and therefore there is reconciliation. There is no longer enmity. He's not our enemy, and, and he's, not, he's not our enemy, and we're not his enemy. There is reconciliation. There's the bringing of two, two warring parties together. Um, and Jesus has done that. He is the, the mediator that's brought the two together. The God-man stands between God and man. And so these are two great benefits that we have as, uh, of the saving work of Jesus Christ that we receive right now by the, by, through faith in Christ. We're justified. We're reconciled to God. We have open access into his presence.
And now he says, if those amazingly powerful things are true, then is there anything else that is also true with even more certainty, if that were possible? Is there, is there more, even than justification and reconciliation? And there is. Uh, you are, first of all, you're saved from the wrath of God. You're, uh, you no longer have to face the wrath of God. And Paul's thinking here about the, the final judgment is, that is to come, and we were thinking about that this morning, that uh, you know, there is a judgment to come. But Paul is saying, you don't have to face the wrath of God in that judgment. We are saved from that wrath. And Paul is saying, has been saying, the wrath of God is, is present against the sin and unrighteousness of man. It's working itself out in the way that people live. God is giving himself over, giving people over to their sins. And the wrath has been worked out day by day as people just indulge themselves in sins. But it's nothing as compared to the wrath that is to come. There is a hell to be endured for eternity. Now people often speak of hard personal experiences as as a kind of hell on earth. They look at some terrible disaster and speak of hell on earth. My life has been hell the last so many weeks and months and years. But actually, it can't be hell. Because that's reserved for the day of judgment, the day of wrath. But the point he's making here is that the Christian who has been justified in Jesus Christ has absolute confidence that when that day comes, if Christ has not returned and you die and you come into the presence of God, you will not have to face the wrath of God against your sin, even though you rightly deserve it. So no longer do you or I have to go through life worrying about whether I'm going to be acceptable to God. He's already declared you're acceptable to Him. And so when the day of death comes, and it will come to all of us, if Christ does not come back again, is that we can enter into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ without fear. You know, it's a wonderful thing that, when a, that a Christian can, can die without fear. To face death knowing where your destination is, what your destiny is. Knowing that you're going to meet the Savior face to face. Knowing that you're going to be in the presence of God forever. Sadly, for many church people, that's not the case. I... <laughs> I distinctly remember, you remember Richard Dawkins, the, the great, the well-known scientist and atheist who, who wrote a book called uh, The God Delusion. There's a chapter in there where he talks, of, I mean, he's really critical, un, uh, unreasonably so, but he's really critical of Christians. But one of the things he, one of the observations he made about Christians that he's ever known is that many of them, that he has known, have been utterly terrified of death. Utterly terrified. And when death approaches, the fear starts coming out. 
I think that's quite a striking thought. That even people who profess to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ seem to be terrified of death. It seems to me to me to be a tragedy if true, because it probably speaks of the fact that the gospel has not been properly proclaimed in their uh, church experience as they've come to church week by week and they've uh, come to worship. They've never been sure that they're going to be saved. And so when death comes, they come with all kinds of uh, guilt and grief over their sins. And they have no certainty that the wrath of God is removed from them. But for the Christian who understands the gospel, we can face death with a, a glorious certainty and that actually to die is, uh, is a glorious day. I was at a funeral yesterday of a good friend who was very suddenly taken with cancer. And uh, one of the verses that was going through my mind was Psalm 116, verse 15. It's a, a, psalm, it's a verse I've preached on at funerals. Precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. God looks upon death, and that moment of death is a precious moment where he receives his saints home. And, and we suffer the loss of it, of that death. And we mourn and we grieve, and we grieve that it is necessary. But for God, precious. In the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. And you think about the death of, I'm rambling now, but look, you think about the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Have you ever noticed that uh, when it speaks of Jesus ascending into heaven, uh, we talk about him being seated at the right hand of the Father. But at the point of the death of Stephen, you notice something interesting about the vision that he sees just before his death. You know how he saw Jesus. And what's Jesus doing? He is standing at the right hand of the Father. And he is in the posture of intercession. See, to stand at the right hand of the Father is to be pleading with God at the point of Stephen's death. You see, it's at that moment that God seems to take a very active, definite interest in his saints. And at that very moment, Jesus is saying, bring him home. Bring her home. Come in. Bring him into my presence. Now is the moment. It's precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now if God sees your death like that, how we should see our deaths like that. A time of our death is a beautiful thing. We pass through to eternal life. I hope you're ready for your death. But here's another thing that's more certainly true. We shall be saved by his life. And um, uh, verse 10, we shall be saved by his life. Paul links Christ's life with rec- reconciliation. What life is Paul 
therefore talking about. He's talking about his life now as the risen, reigning king, seated at the right hand of the Father. Even standing at the right hand of the Father. And John reports, one, you know, the Apostle John reports one of the reasons that Jesus gave for coming into the world. He says, I've come that my sheep may have life and have it abundantly in John 10.10. So life, life is a gift. But Paul is hinting here that uh, something that he will expand on more as we get into chapter 6, uh, into chapter six and chapter 8. That the life that we receive from Jesus is nothing other than Jesus' life uh, it's himself which he shares with us as we are united with him. And it is by his life that we are, we are saved. We enter into his life. Eternal life becomes ours because Jesus becomes ours. His heart becomes our heart. What he loves becomes what we love. What he hates becomes what we hate. And so on and so on. And this is the life for all eternity. Eternal life. Well, as we come to the finish, Paul finishes again with a note of rejoicing, verse 11. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's a simple yet added benefit for those who have been justified and reconciled through the work of Jesus, for those who anticipate the escape from wrath and unending bliss of eternal life. For those who begin to experience this new life now as they walk in new relationships to Jesus, they have this impulse, therefore, to rejoice. Rejoice in your life. To rejoice in God, to rejoice in his wonderful plan, to rejoice in his wonderful purpose to save us and to do so through his Son, our mediator, Jesus Christ. And this is not simply that Christians are trying to be trying to be extra specially happy. It comes from knowing something that is utterly true. Something that can only be given by a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. That God really loves them. And that Christians know that because know that because when they look upon the cross and they see the evidence of it. They see what that God has provided the solution to their problems and indeed has opened up to them a, a, a vista, a panorama of eternal life that's yet to come. And so they need not fear anything, not even death itself. Are you that kind of Christian this evening where you have the cross at the center of your thinking. Where you're free of fear, the fear of death. Where you're living Jesus' life. Where you're looking forward to salvation. Is that you this evening? It can be you if you're a Christian. If there's any doubt, then don't just sit in your doubt, but by all means, talk to someone about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this wonderful gospel and all the benefits that come to us because of it. Lord God, we pray you'd help us to see clearly how much you love us and for that to change our whole, the whole complexion of our lives, to see things differently, 
and to live differently. In Jesus' name, amen.